Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Gong, the podcast hosting conversations about the earliest stages of startup sales and all the fun stories that come from companies with little cash, no precedence, and lots of guts. As always, my name is Adriel. I'm going to be your host today. Um, I've been reading a lot of books lately about marketing, about sales, just trying to prepare better for the questions I get to ask the brilliant people I talk to. One of the ones I have right in front of me actually brought up a question that I've been thinking about. It's, it's Creativity Inc. by Ed Catmull, the founder of Pixar. And uh, the large part of this book is talking about how a company needs to think about building a creative culture, a culture that puts out big, big wins as often as Pixar does. But in the beginning, as he started talking about the growth of Pixar and his own development as a manager, he's got this really awesome quandary that he comes up with that every entrepreneur, that every head of sales grapples with for quite a long time. And that's about how do you price your product? And I want to read part of this because personally, this is something that every time I go through, this becomes a struggle, becomes a thought process. And I talk about with many of the people on this podcast because I want to get their thoughts. Um, and if you have any ideas about pricing product, uh, hit me up on Twitter at alubarsky2. Let's, let's chat about it. But at Catmull in this book, he's got this great paragraph here where he says, The first question was pretty basic. How do we figure out how much to charge for our machine? I was told by presidents of Sun and Silicon Graphics, big companies here in the Valley, to start with a high number. If you start high, they said, you can always reduce the price. If you lowball it and then need to raise the price later, you will only upset your customers. So based on the profit margins we wanted, we decided on a price of $122,000 per unit. Big mistake. The Pixar image computer quickly gained a reputation for being powerful, but too expensive. When we lowered the price later, we discovered that our reputation for being overpriced was all anyone remembered. The first impression stuck. So it was this interesting paragraph and he talks about how that changed. And I wonder what you guys said, because sometimes I think having a high price is valuable depending on the service you're providing and depending on the growth rate you're looking for. Sure, being overpriced could have problems, being underpriced could have problems as well. Ferrari is probably overpriced for what it is and they seem to be doing okay. And if you start low and raise your prices, is that really such a bad thing? Tesla seems to do it all the time, raising their prices, pushing out delays. And is that really such a problem for a company like them or is it just a strategy? Just a strategy to let them uh, have more cash in the bank to get customers excited. So. I'm not really sure. I personally believe, and I sit more on the lines of price your product where the customer is going to pay for it at the growth rate that you want. So there's multiple levels in that equation. If you want an insane, really high growth rate and your product might not really be up to snuff yet, there's some features that need to be pushed out, then yeah, price it low. If you want to grow, you price it low, you make it easy for them. But if you think that your product still needs to be developed, there could be a lot of value to slow growth, to thoughtful growth and to growth just among the customers that recognize the potential of what you're selling so much that really really pricing it higher for them and letting them be involved in exchange for that high price and the development of your product, development of the category, and development of the entire industry in their own image, so to speak, I think that's got a lot of value. So I don't know, I don't know, I don't have any of the answers really, Uh, but been thinking about it a lot and if you have thoughts about how to price early stage companies, low, high, right in the middle. Uh, shoot, hit me up on Twitter, let's have a conversation about it. Uh, but we will get to that at another time. 
Today, I am so excited to introduce our guest because she is awesome. Our guest today is Viv Faga, F-A-G-A. And Viv is, Viv's a badass. That's what she really is. Viv is a fantastic marketer. She's thoughtful about the fundamentals. She's done great marketing over and over and over again at companies. And what's cool about her story is that she's done it at the biggest companies in the world in tech. Uh, she's been a VP or a chief marketing officer at companies like Salesforce and then Yammer, which ended up selling to Microsoft for $1.2 billion and Zenefits during the turnaround period. And she's done it with different kind of leaders. Some leaders that believed in the power of marketing, some leaders that thought it was irrelevant, that she had to work on the internal politics and the internal culture to convince them otherwise. So we had an awesome conversation about what it takes to be a great marketer in the early stage among different kinds of leaders, different kinds of products, different kinds of categories, and how entrepreneurs who are not by nature marketers need to think about the value of marketing. And today, uh, Viv has taken all that operating experience to become the operating partner focused on marketing at Emergence Capital, uh, which focuses on early stage SaaS investing. And, and Viv really comes in to work with the startups as much as possible and help them construct their message think more deeply about the customer, about what message they're putting out in what verbiage and where they're putting it. And it was, it was really fun and educational to talk to her. Uh, we talked about the different ways that CEOs respond to marketing ideas, how category creation works, how culture at companies like Salesforce and Yammer directly supported the success of those companies. So this is an awesome conversation. I really dug into the details, into the nitty gritty of what it means to do marketing at a startup, how that affects sales and, and, op and everything else. And I'm just, as you can tell, super excited that Viv and I got to spend this time together. We, uh, we sort of just started talking and couldn't quite find the right opportunity to stop her and say welcome on the gong, so we didn't stop. We just sort of kept talking. Um, so it's a smooth transition and I really hope that all of you enjoy my conversation with the brilliant Viv Baga. Some things are, are just fundamentals, right? Yeah, like some things are never going to change, right? I mean, the fact that like you have to, whether you're going to build a category or um, so create a new category or redesign an existing category, I mean, that that doesn't change, right? Um, he talks a lot about that book Ogilvy on advertising, and um, it's yeah, a book that's been around for a really long time. Yeah, it's a great book. Right? What so, are some of those fundamentals to you? Things that just a hundred years ago and a hundred years from now, it's just marketing is marketing is marketing. I think that's one of them to be, like the for me the, the one of the most important things you can do as a marketer is like think about the message, right? I think we find that like every company wants to dig into the numbers now. Everyone's so quantitatively driven, and everybody talks about demand gen and the performance marketing and how important that is, and it is super important. But you can only optimize Google AdWords so much if you don't have a good message, right? And so. Um, I've always found that like product marketers are such, I mean, every role is really important in marketing. It's so multifaceted, but I find that like hire really good product marketers first because they have the ability to be creative, create the content, create the copy that serves all the other teams, serves sales, serves um, the performance marketing team. And without like, an amazing product marketer, like a lot of the money that you're going to spend is going to be wasted. So 
think you have to have your all-up message understand very clearly for the company, like who are we, why do we exist, what's our North Star, and then have the ability to be able to tell that story to the world. And you take all of that work and you you use, you know, frankly, the performance marketing team to generate more leads, but if you just have a bad message, it doesn't matter what you do, right? And where do people uncover these messages? I mean, oftentimes, like, mission does fall by the wayside when survival is sort of what you're doing at the moment. So when you do hire your product marketer and, and he or she is running around trying to have these conversations, it's not always so easy. So where does where does this search for mission come from and where can you tie tangible benefits to doing things like that uh, to what this product marketer is doing or to one of these fundamentals of marketing, which is just tell your story? Yeah, I mean, I think I was actually having this conversation with one of our founders who's in a, a really interesting category and it's a category that's been around forever, right? But they're taking a totally new approach. I mean, I can probably talk about them and they won't, they won't mind, but it's a company called Open Path and the category is access control. So every building we go to has, you know, a, a, basically a you know, hid device. So you, it's that like key card that you take out of your pocket and you open. And so they're creating a totally new way of looking at that category. And that's, um, you effectively download a mobile app and you, you know, just, it senses who you, senses you and you use your, you swipe it with your finger, you don't have to touch it, you just kind of swipe by and then the door opens. And so they have this dilemma. Do we live in the access control world when we're doing something totally fundamentally different? Um, and so there are pros and cons to each and we were weighing those benefits and sort of just kind of back to your question, I think like the best marketers have to be able to like really understand what is this new category if I'm going to build it? And they actually create it, they build like a small SWAT team. What you don't want um, is to have like marketing, what I call marketing by consensus. So you get like 50 people in a room and everybody has an opinion and everybody thinks they're a marketer and frankly, like nobody's going to be helpful at that point. So, so marketing by yeah, consensus. You need decisive leadership in marketing just as you do in, in anywhere else. Yeah, yeah. So that's just like always a disaster. So pick a few people that are, that know, understand the world that you live in really well. So I, I think um, heads of product are a great person to have in the room because they're so close to product. They know exactly what they're building, what's coming. Obviously the CEO needs to be there, right? Um, head of marketing needs to be there. Head of sales can help, but they really just provide more input. At the end of the day, it's really between marketing and the CEO to agree to what that category is, what that message should be. And you come up with, a, frankly, a lot of different iterations. You get into a room, and I was talking to the Open Path CEO, Alex, about this. I said, look, we just need to get into a room and kind of hash it out the old school way, right? We can all try to use data to inform. We, and there will be lots of data that will help try and help inform this message, but what do we think it is? And then let's go out and test it and see if it sticks. So what's an example, like with Open Path, you, know, you guys are structuring this message, what they're doing as a product or as a business seems a little bit confused. They're, they're finding success in one route. They might want to be doing something else. What is a conversation like at a company like that and trying to figure out what their mission is and what their message is? Yeah, I think it's less that it's confused. It's more that you have this like big category that's established, access control, lots of different players. When you call a prospect, they know exactly what access control is. But now you're telling the prospect, you know, hey, let me try and sell you effectively access control, but we do it in a totally different way. So it's more just, you know, I'm not going to disclose exactly what we're going to do because we're working through all that right now. I'm sure it's very clever. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it'll be very clever, as most <laughs> marketers um, try to be, but 
but yeah, I think it's more an exercise of like, let's strategically come up with like, who do we want to be down the road? And you're always balancing where are you in market now, but like, how do we get the world to believe that what we're doing is so fundamentally different, right? So There's probably a lot of tension oftentimes you've seen a marketer and a CEO, the CEO who's been the chief storyteller for X amount of months or years before the marketer came in. Where do you see that tension being resolved? I know you've, you've seen it, if I understand it right, when you came to Yammer, there was a lot of tension between the CEO who thought he could do it on his own and you who were like, ah, well, if you think that maybe it's not the right fit, how does that tension, what does the conversation around that tension look like? I think it's really fun, right? I mean, I, it's, for whom? <laughs> for, I think for everybody involved because I think that the best situation you can be in is when you get to work with the CEO who's a visionary, right? And I think you're talking about David Sachs, who's a visionary and created this new, you know, was on this mission to create this new category, Enterprise Social, uh, which now Slack dominates. Great, obviously, great category at the time. Um, you're very innovative in that respect. But like it's, it's, there is a tension that I think most CEOs think their products can't sell themselves. And what I've learned is that, yes, in a sense, they can definitely, you'll see a lot of product growth um, in terms of users, in terms of engagement, but sometimes that doesn't necessarily translate to revenue. So, like, sales are very different from, like, you know, traditional growth in that respect. So, if you can get them to understand, hey, look, let me work with sales as a marketer, let me work with sales, let me help generate revenue, and then they can look back in a year or two and say, oh, gee, this was the best decision I ever made, and I feel like you're winning. And so that's the fun part of, like, the tension. I, I always like to be... Um, so it's fun to, to sort of be underestimated, right? And your in your talent to be not that my specific talent, but I think marketing in general is just underestimated in terms of what they can deliver to the business. Yeah, one of my favorite lines about product selling themselves comes from this guy. I think he was like the VP of sales at General Electric refrigeration unit, and he had a line that everyone my whole career people have been telling me that products sell, that our refrigerator is so good that sell themselves. But I've still been waiting for a refrigerator that could get up and talk. <laughs> right. right. Point is, somebody's got to do the talking right. on right. their behalf. When you now look into the conversations that your CEOs are having with the heads of marketing that you're making them interview because, ugh, fine, our investor and this smart woman said we need a head of marketing. Yeah. What are the What are the most repeated issues that they throw your way? No, we don't need this because of X. And then what advice do you give? to the head of marketing and say, hey, you're working with a CEO who's a little reticent, a little reluctant to do this. Here's how you're going to prove them wrong in the first six months. Yeah, so I think they're, it's funny, so we tend to work with emergency, we work with early stage founders, right? We tend to invest with the A. So it's like, like you end up with oftentimes 10 engineers and a dog, right? They've literally, and you, you know, you had Doug on your podcast, Doug Landis, he's great. He's sort of my, he's, he is my counterpart on the sales side. And so we will walk into a company and say, okay, no marketing and no sales, but you have growth because usually we invest when there is um, some evidence of ARR and usually you know, 1 million ARR at a minimum. So they're doing quite well. They don't really know how they got there, which is nice because the market has kind of pull, you know, pulled the product in and it's been selling itself. Um, so then at that point we come and we say it's time it's time to hire marketing. Actually, Doug will recommend the first person you hire is a marketer, then you know, customer success. Um, maybe, maybe he wants customer success first, but regardless, it's one of the first folks that you hire because before you even hire the salesperson. Yeah, because imagine if you hire the salesperson, right? Salespeople are 
I love them, but they're interesting in that they like things to be fed to them, right? I mean, you're a salesperson, so um, you know they. Oh, they, these are better post generation. Yeah, <laughs> like like I'm more effective once you give me a few leads that have been warmed up and have read a little bit about my product and have indicated a certain level of interest. And so, at which point, it's you know it's much easier. And, and I don't. Every salesperson wants to be incredibly effective, right? And so. If they have to spend all their time on the phone educating the prospect on the value proposition, and they should do some of that, but if like if, if the person comes to them and they're like, I actually don't really know why I clicked on your product or why I downloaded the demo, but it seems cool, that's just a lot of extra work for any salesperson, right? So, so what marketing should do is really help build that core message, right? Test it out by creating content, collateral, um, you know, updating the website creating some teaser videos, really kind of think through all the different ways that you can educate the market. You're, you're, and you're a limited resource. There's only so much you can do. So pick one or two uh, channels that you, that, you know, frankly, if you're a product marketer, that you, you're really good at. So I think like content and videos, website, those are all really important ways um, to be able to educate your prospects. And so that by the time they get to the salesperson, they're just more well-informed. What do you remember doing in your first six months at Yammer? Uh, my first six months at Yammer, gosh, it's like it was so long ago. And for context, where was the company? They already had some sales going on, right? They were, yeah, they weren't about to sell. They'd sell it some time before they were about to sell. That's right. right. That's right. And actually, they, they were doing great. It was a great team. Uh, a lot of my old Salesforce team had gone there. So a gentleman by the name of David Obrand, um, he was the CRO there, and then Sam Loveland uh, was the customer was ran customer success there, who's now at ServiceNow. Um, so it was a killer team that I'd worked with before. And what they had was honestly the this bleeding edge product, and they had a, you know honestly a great marketing team as well, but really struggling with their story and their message. And so what we were doing as a as a company, what I found so the first thing I did was actually just ran an analysis. I interviewed a bunch of people, and I realized that what the sales team was doing was they had this like use case catalog, right? So they would go into a prospect and say, "There's 52 use cases for Yammer." customer let's talk about it like what's the use case that is, is is really important for you and the customer would say like well I don't know it's you know that one here's like a little M&A one or you know maybe just a generic teams one and so they kind of it was confusing right there's this conundrum of it's a bit overwhelming for the Super customer to make those decisions on their own yeah and then it's easy to say let's just run a pilot like I don't know if I want to roll this out wall-to-wall because there's 52 use cases I don't know where the value is and, and actually you know, unlike Slack, like we were at that time in 2012 or 2013, 2014, people still used it for like quote unquote water cooler conversations. People would post like what they did that weekend. Like they weren't really sure how this applied to work, right? So we, what we realized very quickly was that like we had to show business value. Like we really had to show that this is a platform where you can come in and like run your team meetings and um, post any presentation, right? It's a platform to give your whole company a voice. And that was just not um, not very logical for the prospects at the time, right? So, so what I did was I ran a, a big analysis and I saw that uh, you know you, I worked with sales, I worked with some great ops folks, and we saw that there were really four core solutions that you know really core reasons why people were buying the product. One was employee engagement, right? There's an HR was a core buyer of the product, and they felt that you know they needed a platform to give all their employees a voice and keep their employees engaged and happy at a company. So there were like five core use cases within that. We had one that was called business transformation. As you can understand, if you're a CEO, like you're pretty, you know, 
you might be buying a company, you could be laying off employees, you might be going through any amount of change at any point. So the C-suite wants a platform to get all their employees on one platform. The third one was a kind of a generic catch-all, like you needed a generic team collaboration, so you know, distributed teams, um, you know, people working in different places, that was a really easy sale as well. And then the fourth one was social intranet. So believe it or not, like the intranets, I mean, there's still a lot of SharePoint users out there. I mean, it's still a really, that was actually my biggest surprise when we were bought by Microsoft was just how prolific SharePoint was. And so people oh, wanted- habits die hard. I was at a conference the other yeah. day and they were talking about how text messaging is here. And they were trying to get people to communicate more via text messaging. Right. Sometimes it takes a minute to a couple decades to get to, off a habit. It, it totally. Yeah. And, so, and SharePoint is still used all the time. So anyway, social internet was a fourth one. And so long story short, we had to shift from like this 52 use cases to four solutions. And that really changed the way that people thought about the product. And so we retrained all of sales. And so they would come in as consultative sellers and they would ask the customer, like, what problems are you facing? So they wouldn't walk in with 52 use cases. They would just ask them, let's whiteboard them out. And then they would map, map them to these four solutions. And then that really helped sell wall to wall and helped accelerate the sales cycle. Yeah, and that's right around the time where you guys were trying to go more into enterprise and go more into mm -hmm. our market, right? Exactly. So what, what do you think it would have looked like if you did not show up and uh, David and the team decided, hey, we're going to sell bigger clients, bigger contracts, up market, trying to do wall to wall and less pilots? What, what might have that looked like if there was no marketing uh, foundation that they were building off of? And I should add, a big part of this too is not just sales, it was customer success. And then customer success used it to help build all of the work that they do, right? So they would then tie their core problems to success metrics with the product, and so then they would stay in the loop. So I think it would have been, you know, I think from a sales perspective, we wouldn't have closed as much business nearly. I mean, I think we like quadrupled sales within like six months. It, it grew incredibly quickly. And, you know, I think honestly, you would have a lot more, uh, you probably lose a lot more clients that way because if you just turn it on and you really don't have, you know, the idea that like this could be used for real business value, this could be used to like drive success within my company, then you're probably not going to renew, right? Yeah. Were salespeople happy to have you around? You know, it's funny, they were, but the, initially there was resistance, right? Because anytime you, you say, hey, let's do something differently than we've been doing it before, you're going to be met with resistance. So it was definitely hard to roll out all of the work because we basically created all new content collateral. We had pitch decks, demos, um, blogs. We had video campaigns, all to support those four solutions. But once they saw their sales increasing, then they were ecstatic, right? I mean, who's not going to love that when they're getting a bigger check? So... I just took a little bit of time. Yeah. Uh, different CEOs probably have a big effect about how, well, definitely have a big effect about how any different department goes differently. Product-centric CEOs might want to hire as many engineers and designers as possible. Marketing-centric CEOs might go one of two ways, or either they can do it all on their own, or they recognize how valuable it is to have somebody in that position. You worked with two brilliant, many brilliant CEOs, two of which, David Sachs at Yammer, who's had a, a rap sheet like no other, um, throughout startups and entrepreneurship, and then um, at Salesforce, obviously you work with Mark Benioff, who has the largest tower in San Francisco. <laughs> How different were those two different people? And you wrote about, I thought it was really interesting, you wrote about how Yammer had a, a culture of dissent, mm -hmm. while at Salesforce it was a very, very different environment. Um, how different were those two leadership styles, and how did that apply to the work you were able to do? Yeah, I mean, I'll just chat first about this idea of a culture of dissent, which I think is a 
I still, lo I really love it. And I talk about it a lot with our entrepreneurs. And I think it's a little bit easier now. At the time, it was a lot more forward thinking. I think there's still an old New York Times article that you can pull up on it. But what was so unique about it was that, granted, your, your, your product is a social product. So you want people to be able, like, to, to feel as though they can express themselves, right? And so it really was this idea that anybody could disagree with David. I mean, you could, dis and you could disagree with anybody in management, which sometimes is hard when you're, you know, a, a leader and a, or, you know, a VP and above, and people enjoy going toe-to-toe -to -toe with you. And, and at times you think, well, gee, I know everything, but at the end of the day, you don't. You have a lot of really smart people you've hired that are working for you, and so they should have an opportunity to dissent and to disagree with you. And so it really was just a way of saying, yeah, I'm going to listen. And all of you have, you know, I am not the smartest person in the room. And all of you, you know, it's, it's, it was the opposite of command and control in that sense. And there are pros and cons to it. But for the most part, I thought there were a lot of benefits to that culture. I mean, I think Salesforce is, in a sense, the opposite, right? Everything is very much, a, at least when I was there, I mean, I left a long time ago. I was there from 2004 to 2010. But I think Mark had a very clear vision of, the company and the product, who Salesforce is and what they wanted to be when they grew up, right? I mean, uh, you know, when I joined, there were 500 employees. It was just around, you know, pre, slightly pre-IPO. And we had this big hill to climb, you know, the, the cloud. And a lot of people didn't really believe in us. And so I think it was really was Mark's vision to help catapult and start this entirely new industry. And so I think it was a bit more of a command and control. But, um, and I'm sure that's changed since. But at the same time, I thought, we got to learn from this really brilliant marketer as well. Although I think Mark was really good at everything. I mean, he was a great marketer. He was a great salesperson, right? He's a killer at um, product as well. So he's just, just a very unique leader. I would say David's strengths were, you know, in the product area. He was inc an incredible visionary. But he also was a really good marketer too. Um, so, and I also worked for with Christopher Lockhead, you know, who has his own podcast as well on the Play Bigger front. Um, he was the act, sort of acting CMO at this company called Jive Software, which is a precursor uh, to Slack as well. And he was also, you know, obviously a killer marketer. But Tony Zingali, who was the CEO, was you know was a marketer um, too. So I've worked with all types of CEOs, and they're all very different. But at the end of the day, you want to if you're a marketer, you want to work for people who value marketing, right? And so your your struggle will naturally be more difficult if you're working with someone who just who doesn't get it, or, and really the issue is, you know, if they don't, if they're not open um, to hearing your dissension, in a sense, because I think there's always that dissension if you're a marketer, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when you say, it's always so funny, because I'm currently working at the largest company I've ever worked at, besides a uh, nightmare of a stint at J.P. Morgan, which we'll leave oh, unspoken okay. about. That sounds like a good conversation. Yeah, that was all right. <laughs> uh, better conversation than, than time there. <laughs> but, so when I think of startup, I'm like, I don't know, what do you got, like six people, maybe 20 people, maybe you've got 100 people, and then you're no longer a startup, now you're a big, sophisticated yeah, company. Yeah, Just now, you were like, yeah, you know, we were about 500 people at Salesforce, we had a big uphill battle to climb, which is, of course, the case, but just from the mentality that many people who spend their time in the smallest of companies, or especially many people early in their career who decided to love startups but just haven't gotten around to being 200, 500, 1,000 people, I mean, those numbers are behemoths of the numbers. So in your career over the last 20 years where you've spent it at large companies, public companies, a stint at Microsoft, watch Yammer grow a ton, same thing at Salesforce, versus now where you're investing in a Series A round where it's 10 engineers and a dog, how different are the 
sales processes, the marketing standards, and where does focus lie differently at those big companies where you spent most of your career versus at the companies that now you're advising? It's probably a big, it probably is a challenge or a difference for you. You're not just taking what you did at Salesforce and saying, guys, do this, it worked great at that time. 12 people are not gonna figure out how to do that. Yeah, and you have to be careful, right? I mean, if you're giving, you can't go in and be like, well, at Salesforce, we did this, and you're right. I, mean, was, yeah, I did join, it was a much bigger company. It just, it's always interesting, it's interesting to me because people, I think, look back at that company and think, oh yeah, that was always going to be a surefire success. But it really wasn't, I mean, when I was there, we, I think the stock price went from like, when an IPO from 16 to nine bucks, I mean, nobody really believed in the company. No one thought enterprise, enterprises would put their data in the cloud. I mean, it really was a, we did a lot of work to build that category, right? So I definitely try to, you know, I, I probably look less at that experience in terms of like giving advice to 10 engineers and a dog. But I think what remains true is this idea that you have to have a very clear point of view of who you are and why you exist. And I've seen this time and time again. So I run this mission vision exercise with all of our, all of our portfolio companies. And it's something that I'm super passionate about. And so as soon as we invest, I go and I park myself for about two days and it's grueling. And I've seen, it's so fascinating because so I've run this probably you know, upwards of 20, 20 times now. And the companies that do it incredibly well have had wild success. And I've had a few where the exercise has not gone well. They don't know how to express who they are. They don't, they fight over why they exist. They fight over who their competition is. They really lack that clarity. And so when I leave the room, I go, wow, I have to double down with that company because if you're struggling this early on to articulate that, then imagine when you have 50 people and 100 people, if you can't do it now, what's gonna happen when you've grown, right? Why so, do you do that exercise after you invest as opposed to before you invest? It's sounds, a good question. Sounds like we've, a good due diligence. We've, 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 uh, had that, we've had that debate many times, like why don't we just end it before? Um, <laughs> it would make you guys a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, totally, it would, it would help a lot. Um, but I, I mean, we do a really good job in terms of like who we work with. We, there's a lot of other signals, right? So I think we do quite well in terms of who we choose to work with and who chooses to work with us. But we've had that debate. I think part of it is that it takes, I mean, it really takes two days. I think everyone just assumes like, oh, a, you know, a, a message. How, how, yeah, come in for an hour, so let's talk. Easy, and... you know? I can't tell you how many times I've had coffee with like, you know, great CEOs who are getting ready to start their next thing. And the, the thing they say to me at lunch is like, oh, so can you just tell me what my message should be? After a one-hour lunch, and I think you, know, you you're missing the point, right? Like, a it it takes time to come up with it. It's a bit of art and a bit of science, and B it's constantly evolving, right? And that's the other thing you have to add to it is what the message that works for you this year probably won't work for you next year. So you're, you know, you kind of have this core, but you're always changing it. That's probably why it's so frustrating for most people. If you're an engineer-focused CEO or leader you have an end to what you're working on. You have specs, you have your product requirements doc, you go build something, it's out there, great, moving on to the next project. If you're a sales-oriented person, you have a prospect, you gotta talk to them, ask them questions, close the deal, get your paycheck, you move on to the next prospect. You're talking about, if you're talking about sitting for two days and agonizing over whether you put one word in over another, what the message means, where to share it, how to share it, no one word matters more than the other. That's probably very, very frustrating for many people who haven't done that before to recognize the value of because they've got a million other things to do. 
Oh, Are, do people ever get annoyed when you come in for two days? So annoyed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so annoyed. It's, it, it, again, there's some that are so easy and seamless. Like there's one founder I work with. His name is Ryan Chan. Uh, he is such a dream to work with. He is the CEO of a company called Upkeep. They're based in LA and it's you know, software, effectively software for maintenance workers. And te- this technology has been around forever, but he's built like the leading edge uh, technology for, for folks in the field. And what's unbelievable is that people build the software, but they don't build it for folks who are remote. So he actually built the mobile technology. So it's doing incredibly well. And I went to run this exercise with them and you know, it went so fast and so smooth because they know exactly who they are. They know exactly like what mission they're on, right? And he got so fired up. He like took out billboards all over LA. And I mean, it, so that's what I love. That's you know the easy case. And then there's the harder ones where, and I actually, you know, there's the early days, which actually can be, it's, it tends to be a little bit easier. But what I find when it gets harder is when you're at 150 employees and you're hitting that next phase of growth, right? And you've moved on from one product and now you're a multi-product company. So um, those are always really interesting conversations. So yeah, people get frustrated. It's not so much with me. It's actually, it's more of that like product and engineering will butt heads or product and sales will butt heads because they're, they're building a specific product for a specific market. And then sales and marketing are saying, actually, this is what we're hearing from the customer. This is what they're saying that they want. And sometimes it's the first time they've gotten into a room to kind of duke it out, for lack of a better word. But at the end of the day, it's always cathartic, right? It is emotional. I've had people cry after these sessions. They you know, literally pulled me aside and said, thank you so much for coming in. This was, you know, this was really hard to do, but I'm so glad we did it, right? So it's, it's just fascinating. What are some of the questions? If somebody listening wants to run this exercise with their own team or maybe with themselves, how would you recommend they structured or questions to ask themselves to begin to identify what you try to get out of a company in two days? I mean, yeah, I, I wish I could summarize it. It's a good point. Maybe I will write a blog post on just how we run these exercises. It's, it's fascinating. But I mean, in the simplest form, you could just take a positioning statement. So ask everybody to write a positioning statement, right? And Can and you then, define that? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, you could Google this, but a positioning statement, um, you can find it on the web, but it's basically... Who are you today and who do you want to become in its simplest form? And having every individual write that, it's really, it's just fascinating to see how they verbalize their company and their product and their mission in the world. So you start with that positioning statement and then you're just going to butt heads about, well, no, I think you're incorrect on this. This is, please defend this part of it. Here's where we differ. Exactly. And then from that, there's a lot more work to get into like the simplification of the mission and the values and, um, and then actually launching it the whole company both internally and externally and sticking so, to it sticking to it and then evolving it right over you know over time and sticking to it is probably a big challenge because sticking to it is hard sticking to it means not changing in the slide deck just because you think it might work it means really really sticking it out even if you're going to sacrifice some other things going on yeah and you have to hit 80 20 rule the 80 20 rule i mean and what i mean by that is the message will feel good 80% of the time. And then 20% of the time, it's probably not going to work. And you just have to be okay with that. But you're never going to get 100% of the audience to be happy with this message. Yeah. But if you can get 80% of the audience happy with it, then I think it's been hugely successful. One of the things that it seems this would lead to is, is one of the words that you use a half dozen times here is categories. Can you talk a little bit about what a category is? Uh, and then I would love to get into a few specific examples of maybe the differences between somebody defining a new category, such as you mentioned Mark Benioff and Salesforce did and what that looked like, versus somebody entering a category defined by the competition and what they should do in that moment. But we, we can start more broadly with 
what are categories and how do entrepreneurs or, or salespeople or marketers look at what a category is? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different definitions for what a category is, but in its simplest form, I'll, I'll use this example. So there's a company called Sales Loft that we work with closely here, and they've created what's called the sales um, engagement category, right? And so they looked at this opportunity where they said, uh, you know, okay, we know that CRM exists and CRM is going to continue ex to exist, but what we're finding is that sales reps are not engaging with uh, CRM anymore, right? It's really become a tool for managers to be able to log in on Sundays, figure out where the deals and the opportunities are tracking. But what if you want to engage with your customers and you want to be able to send what they call cadences, right? Various email, email campaigns. In a sense, it's kind of like a marketing automation platform for sales reps. So they knew that while this kind of lived in this CRM category, they were not going to win if they called themselves a CRM, which is actually what initially happened. So all the analysts who were researching them said, well, this is just CRM. It's another, it's kind of what CRM was supposed to do. And, and, and they knew that would be problematic for a number of reasons, right? Then they're just going to be compared to all of the big CRM players, uh, most notably Salesforce, and they didn't want that. So they built this new category, which is sales engagement, right? And so it's, it's an opportunity for a company to look at their product and service and to define what they're doing in an entirely new way. And sometimes it makes sense to live in the category that exists, and then other times, you know, in the cases in the case of SalesLoft, it makes absolute sense to, to create a new one because it's more problematic to stay uh, within it. There's another company that I work with called Guru. Um, it's like getguru.com. Really, really cool product. Very unique. Actually, somewhat, uh, somewhat hard to explain because we were trying to go after a new category, but at the end of the day, it's really knowledge management, right? And so it works closely with like in wherever you are and uh, it's, it works in Gmail, it works in Slack, it works in every and single... what does it let me do? It lets you Manage kind of, my knowledge? Yeah, literally, like keep track of all the knowledge in your head so as soon as you're searching for a question, like it pops up in the sidebar and it tells you like this question's been answered before, right? And knowledge management in, you know, has been around for a long time and so what they found was that the way they're approaching it is very unique and then they were trying to create a new category and it was actually just too confusing for the users. So they said, you know what, we're just gonna go own knowledge management. Yes, what we're doing is totally different and unique, but we wanna own like the mindshare within this existing category. So then how does some, that's a great example. So how does something like that work? If you define your category and you're doing that, where are the pitfalls? I mean, there's big sharks in that water. There's people who have been doing some version of knowledge management for a while. You said it's not a new science, so they're going and competing after something that's been going on for, for quite some time. I like to think of Chobani as an example. Sure, they threw in Greek yogurt, but every other yogurt was always around, and they're really just another yogurt. And there are a lot of other Greek yogurts too, but all of a sudden, somehow, Chobani with all their flowers decided to make it. In the example of Guru here, you, quite, you, you just said specifically, they decided to go after a category that already has other people in it. What does that admission do? Or, or let, me, let me rephrase that. It's more... What, what happens next if there's other, other people already playing in that category? How do they define, how do, how do they attract attention? It's a, it's a good question, and I think the story is going to continue to be told because I think there's an opportunity for them where they're going to decide to live in an existing category that is well-defined and frankly has kind of like archaic, uh, you know, technology tied to it. I think they felt like they were doing it so differently but yet they really wanted to bring the users along in this journey. And there's already you know, a line item for it when you're going to sell the product, right? So that makes things a little bit easier there. And the product is just so amazing and so good and the users are so happy that they felt like, let's just sell them knowledge management because the second they get on it, 
they're going to love it. So it's just a true upgrade from whatever they're using exactly. right now. Exactly. Although they, it is a, a totally new approach, so I think there's an opportunity for them to, in a sense, redesign that category, right? Redesign it and redefine it for them, and then they'll bring the market you know, with them. So, or they could decide to create a new category if the if it makes sense if the product has evolved such that it is you know where it's like so different that it's time to do that. But for now, um, I think it's the, the the data has shown that sticking with knowledge management and redesigning it uh, is the right way to go. So again, you have to try lots of different things, and we all try to throw data at it. But frankly, like it's a little bit old school in the sense that you got to just try it. Um, we had a summit last week with our CEOs and. I don't know if you know the CEO, uh, Peter Gassner, he's the CEO of a company called Viva, which is um, in the life sciences pharmaceutical space. It's a CRM specifically for that industry vertical. I think they're, you know, it's 20 billion plus market cap, right? Company, huge company. And uh, he said this very clearly. He said, you know, all the data said I shouldn't have started this company. Like, I had so many VCs pass on me. Uh, nobody believed that it should be built because when they looked at the data, it felt like a really small market, right? But at the end of the day, I went with my gut, and my gut told me this needed to exist in the world, and then now he's built this you know, really amazing company. So I love data, but I also think you have to like kind of know and just take a, take a guess at what it should be and just see if the, and when I say the data supports it, meaning you know, when you get on the phone with customers, are they saying yes? Are they having that aha moment? Are they saying, like, I've got to have this product and I want to try it? Or is the market saying, eh, I'm not so sure? Then you need to pivot. And so what happened, What I think Viva's a really cool example because you went specific, uh, he focused in on one particular market, so he became a CRM for the life sciences, and ignored CRM for your everything else that Salesforce and HubSpot and everybody else was going after. What did his process, what did his journey look like? I mean, was he looking over his shoulder, worried that some other big CRM player would come in and recognize that the life sciences are underserved, swoop in, build a product, call it a day? Was he worried that he'd hit you know ten million dollars in sales and then tap out because there's really not that much else there what do you think as far as you are around or aware of it what do you think his biggest concerns were uh, when going that niche into something when VCs are telling him no you know I can't I obviously can't speak for Peter but based on the conversation we had it, it, it's exactly what you describe I mean the perspective was like this is a really narrow niche market it's not big enough um, why do you need it? But at the end of the day, he knew it was a highly regulated market and it had a whole other world of, frankly, you know, regulatory concerns, which is why he felt a, you know, a, product built, a CRM product built specifically for that industry would be very successful. Uh, so he just, he kind of just knew and then followed his gut. Sometimes it's all it takes. Sometimes, I mean, just, just it takes a, I think it takes a lot more than that, <laughs> but it takes a lot of courage when everyone's telling you no, right? And you see that story time and time again, and uh, which is a lot of the fun of like building a company, right? I, I want to wrap up here um, and ask about the summit. So you guys put together this incredible summit, and I want everybody who was not able to be there uh, to, to take away one of the learnings of it. Can you talk a little bit about what was at that summit, what you took away? And I don't know if you did or did not give a talk, but if you were to be giving a talk at a summit like this to all the top CEOs and execs of all the companies that you guys have invested in over the many decades that you've been investing, what might the key takeaways from that talk be? We had a full, yeah, so we had this big summit last week. And we, when I say big, it's it's big in the sense that for, for us, what we... What we like to do is we're, we're a firm that 
wants to build very close, unique partnerships with founders. We don't want to have um, you know, 10,000, 20,000 person conferences. It's just sort of not our style. We make five to seven investments a year. So we wanted an opportunity to get all of our portfolio CEOs and help them meet the next generation of founders. Um, and so we brought together, I think it was about 150 to 200 folks who were all in that early stage, the early stages of building a company and help them meet some of our founders who've been on that journey and have had a lot of success. So the whole day kind of revolved around us giving advice to, the, to that community and, and helping out wherever we can. So we had Eric Yuan from Zoom. Um, he talked about his story, his founding story, and he really, we focused the conversation around like unconventional advice because I feel like there's so many talks that these CEOs give, but I wanted like, what are those kind of core unique takeaways? And so that we'll be publishing a blog post on that. Peter Gassner from Viva spoke at that as well. Christopher Lockhead um, on stage as well from Play Bigger. Uh, we also had a you know a lot of different sessions. We had Matt Moshiari, who's kind of a CEO coach, really, really famous CEO coach right now, speak about like why every all CEOs need a coach. Uh, and then we had Kyle from Sales Loft uh, talk about like his journey as well. And that company basically almost died. They had seven million in ARR, and then they had to kill the company, and uh, because they got a cease and desist from LinkedIn. And they turned the whole business around and now LinkedIn is an investor, right? So he talked about that, that really cool founding story. So it was a full day of just like advice and what do. you to remember do. some advice that you took notes on? I took a ton of advice, but I was running the event too, so I was super busy, so I was doing it all. But um, but we actually will publish you know, eight different blog posts and we're going to get all the content out there for everybody. So uh, so yeah, so it was a great day. But I mean, I think in general, the I thought the CEO coaching session is super interesting. I mean, one of the things that everybody's talking a lot about right now is just like the mental state, because of the pressure and building a company requires so much work and keeping your head in the game and everybody needs a coach. And so finding the right coach is super important. I thought that conversation was just fascinating. There's four different types of CEO coaches. There's like the therapist coach. There's the a coach that comes in and effectively tells you like, I'm the CEO now and I'm gonna be running it. So when we have a, you know, that's kind of like the Matt style. And um, I thought, frankly, that was super fascinating as well. So lots to learn there. That's very cool. Do you have a coach? I do have a coach. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. Do you, what what kind of coaching environments do you work in? You know, for me, it's more. Um, it's honestly more. Yeah, pushing me to be like better at my job and be a better leader. That's the stuff that I like to focus on. And then I also view like Christopher in a sense as like a marketing coach, and he's always a ton of fun, and I love to bounce ideas off of him. So uh, having him you know, spend time with me last week and riff on different ideas for different companies was great. So I think everybody needs a coach. Is there, is there a too early, maybe you just answered that, but is there a too early or too late or right time to get a coach? Maybe not, I mean, CEOs, right, fine, you become a CEO, you become responsible for people, maybe it's good to have somebody to be responsible for you, sort of. Uh, what about other folks in other positions? When in, in one's career is the right time to be seriously looking at a coach, looking for a coach? Is it at a crossroads? Is it just as things are going on and you want to bounce questions back and forth? At a crossroads, it's too late. Right, because then what if you have to find a coach, and then it takes a while to find get one. Get to know the coach. Yeah, you got to get to know the coach, and they have to get to know you. So, so yeah, I'd say honestly, it's an, if you want to grow in your career, everybody, everybody needs, everybody can take advice. I actually think that's one of the biggest challenges I find with a lot of CMOS today is that, especially in my role, when I try to coach them, I'll find that we all think that we're we know what's best for our company because we live it, breathe it, eat it, sleep it. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's actually nice to have an outsider, an outsider come in and, and give you some perspective. So I, I, I mean, I, I don't think there's a 
perfect time. I think if you feel like you want to grow, like go find a coach, go find somebody that you really admire who, and don't position it as mentoring, position it as, you know, hey, can I pick your brain once a month for an hour um, and go from there. Awesome. Uh, this is super fun. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, you are not off the hook yet. We okay. got some rapid fire questions oh, for boy. you. Okay. You ready? I'll ask them quickly. You could take a while to answer them if you want. All okay, right? sounds good. Um, are there any sales, marketing, or startup books that have been particularly helpful to you? Yes. Okay. The marketing book uh, that I love is the Al Rise and Jack Trout. It's called... The 22 New Villas? No. It's Positioning the Battle for Your Mind. That is a legendary, legendary book. And everyone has to get that. Yeah. And then Ogilvy for Advertising is a great book too. But like the, the um, it's an old book. And what I love about it is it still rings true. So, and you'll find like they'll have like the Coke and the Pepsi battle, I believe, in that book. And at the time, I think Pepsi was winning and they go back and forth. But um, that's just a great, great marketing book. And right now I'm reading uh, Reboot by Jerry Colonna, which is the, which is the, the coaching book. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, I, I saw him speak at a conference a few weeks ago. I'd never heard of him before. People cried after his like one hour session. Oh, yeah. People are in love with this guy. Oh, yeah. I'm reading the book and I'm crying. You know, you're right. I'm writing the notes in terms of you know, it's these like journaling invitations and you're kind of going, gosh, like, why am I doing this to myself? This is painful. Do you know <laughs> he has a tattoo of a giant spider on his back? No, but that sounds really scary. Yeah, yeah. Apparently he does. I heard him talk about it. That's really Fascinating. creepy. Can't yeah. remember the metaphor, but there was something there. Yeah, I'm sure there's something really cool there. <laughs> um, what is, uh, I often ask, what is the sale you are most proud of landing? But I'll give you two options there. What is the sale that you are very proud of participating in? Mm-hmm. Or is there a particular marketing decision you've made that you are incredibly proud of? Gosh, there's so, there's, I feel really lucky because the cool thing about marketing is that it's such a team sport, right? I mean, there's no like marketing campaign that you run without people who are literally killing themselves to get this thing out the door. So one that was a lot of fun to run was uh, one that I ran at Yammer and it was, we called it the Yammer Moments Campaign. And it was all, you know, all we wanted to do was feature our customers who had had that that Yammer moment, that aha moment, when they realized that they could work differently if they worked social, right? And it was just such a fun campaign to run. We like featured a bunch of our you know, kind of top um, top users. You know, it wasn't like a C-level campaign. You see those all the time. It really was a, you know, let's grassroots, let's get, you know, we had a woman from Jamba Juice who, you know, worked behind the counter, but then really started using Yammer a lot and then was promoted to into corporate, right? And so we told her story. And so that was... That was one where that Microsoft, so Microsoft acquired us around that time and they kind of took that campaign and we actually ran it globally. And so that was a lot of fun. And then I found out later that Apple's team copied parts of the campaign and that's a whole other story for another day. That is high so praise. My, yeah, my, my video team called me and they're like, hey, we just got a call from Apple. They want to know where we did our shoot. So I thought that was really cool. That, that is awesome. Yeah. Um, do you have any favorite failures? In other words, a failure that led to later success down the road? failures gosh that's a tough one um i don't like failing so that's a hard <laughs> one for me even if i end up winning i always like to win um and very unique in that way yeah no i don't like i don't like losing yeah i'll have to come back to that one i really have to think about that all one. right um, well this is a question i've asked before okay. took it out and then actually was requested by a listener to ask you okay very cool can you sell me this pen all right, let's see. All right, you've got a pen. All right. All right. 
talk to me. So what do you think when you see this pen? I uh, think of my notebook. You think of your notebook. And some else? of the notes that we took today. Okay, great. What are the other things that you think this pen can do for you? Uh, hopefully sign some big contracts. Okay, that great. Would, that would take us a long way. Uh, maybe somebody, I play a game uh, with my girlfriend using that pen. That's always fun. Okay, good. Yeah. All right. Did you know that Barack Obama used this pen at one point? No way. Yeah, he did. That very pen. Do you have to have this pen now? I, I want that pen back. Yes, please. She took the pen from me, and now she won't give it back. Barack Obama's pen. Oh, my God. What a thrill. Thank you. I'll take two if you have I'm, them. I'm more of a marketer. I'm not a salesperson, <laughs> clearly. But if someone said that to me, I'm like, I would have to have that pen. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. if, if Barrio yeah. had the pen. If Barrio had the pen. You'd have to have the pen. There I you wonder go. if it still signs his signature here. It probably does. <laughs> awesome. Well, this was a ton of fun. Thank you for Thank having me. Thank you for my me. pen back. Where can people find you, your work, your writing, and some of the stuff you got going on? Yeah, I, I, try, I spend more time following on Twitter than I end up posting because I want to post, but I'm such a perfectionist that like I get stuck with it. Um, well, marketers, if you're on a social media campaign, every letter has to be scrutinized. Yeah, exactly. So I'm really <laughs> struggling with it, but I am going to start writing more on our blog on MCAP, um, MCAP.com. Uh, emcap.com and yeah I've, I mean just send me a note Viv at MCAP uh, I'm always checking and um, we're thinking through Summit next year so I always love to hear any fresh ideas and I always love for folks to send me ideas and like what are cool campaigns that they've seen out there because I truly am a student like I probably spend 20 minutes of my day every day just like researching what other brands are doing whether consumer or enterprise and I just am a student I think it's really fascinating so Kind of take an architecture and design perspective in that sense so i'm kind of like to nerd out on that so if people see cool campaigns send them to me because then i like writing about them very cool well viv awesome thank you so so much thank you for having me well there you have it viv faga ladies and gentlemen marketing fundamentals will take a young company a long way companies need a culture of dissent to keep ideas fresh and verbalizing a mission well, that's more than fluff, it's strategy. If you want to learn more about Viv or Emergence Capital, check them out at mcap.com. That's E-M-C-A-P.com. And if you like the podcast, please, please, please subscribe and leave us a review. It means a ton. If you didn't like the podcast, well, find me on Twitter or on Instagram at alubarski2 all over the internet and we'll make it all better.